This is a talk by Joel titled, Chain of Conditioning, recorded July 8, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. In 1993, I gave a talk called Freedom's Gate, which is uh, taped and it's uh, available in the library if anybody wants to check it out. And in that, I described this uh, teaching of Buddhism of the 12 links of the chain of codependent arising or cyclic existence, as it's sometimes called. It has various alternative names like that. And uh, it's called The Gate of Freedom, or Freedom's Gate was the name of the talk. Now, the thing is about the Buddhist teaching, the uh, terms they use come from the Buddhist tradition and a slightly different cosmology. And so to explain it, you have to end up explaining these terms. And I'm in the process of writing a book, which I've been writing for a number of years now. Uh, but while writing the book, I worked out what I hope is an, uh, an easier, simplified, more generic version of this that perhaps is more appropriate to our culture uh, here and now. And it's called the nine links of the chain of conditioning. And I've spelled them out on the board here. So... Let me begin by reading this chain, just for the benefit of our listening audience, as we used to say on radio. <laughs> and then we will go through and we'll talk about them a little bit more detail. And then we'll talk about, just very briefly, how specific practices address specific links in the chain. So, first of all, the first link is the reification of the first boundary. This is the boundary between I and other self and world, subject and object. The second is chronic restlessness. The third is mental identification. The fourth is judging, good, bad, or indifferent. The fifth is desire and aversion. The sixth is grasping, rejecting, and volition, or self-will. The seventh is deliberating, or planning. The eighth is deciding, and the ninth is forming attachments. So what is the chain of conditioning? Well, just briefly, a little background. Mystics of all traditions say that our belief, our experience of being an individual entity, I, self, is a delusion. And this self that we believe we are is really a reified boundary. Reified is a fancy technical word. It means to take to be real. So in other words, we draw a boundary within the total field of experience, and we call this I, and we think that there's some solid entity here. The most common example of this is what happens when we dream. When we dream, our imaginations create people, objects, whole worlds, environments, and so forth, that are imaginary. They appear in consciousness, but there's no objective reality behind them. But in the dream, we take them to be real. We reify these imaginary forms. So that's a, just a very good example of what reify means. And then what mystics say is, if we could realize what we are doing, 
if we knew that we were reifying all these boundaries, all these forms, this would free us from suffering. And again, it's very similar to uh, a dream experience, particularly if you're having a nightmare. If uh, some assassin is chasing you with a hatchet and trying to kill you, in the dream you're doing all these things to escape, and you're terrified and you're suffering and so forth. But the real ultimate solution is just to wake up and realize, oh, it's not real. And then all your suffering vanishes. So in a nutshell, this is what a uh, mystical path is all about. It's aiming at this realization. This is called enlightenment or gnosis or liberation or whatever. Now, when we wake up, we realize that we aren't an individual self, but we are that field of non-dual consciousness in which all these forms are appearing. So in a certain sense, all these are forms of us. Not us personally, but us as that consciousness, which is uh, what mystics mean by God when they talk about God, for instance. They don't mean some uh, big daddy in the sky. <laughs> this ever-present consciousness that is always here, that is always us, that is the groundless ground out of which all this appears. And then everything appears as lila, as the Hindus say. It's the divine play, or as the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said, everything is divine, all forms are divine. Now, the trouble is, it's not easy to see this act of imagination or these act of imaginations going on because they happen at the deepest level of consciousness, as the Buddhists say, in the deepest seat of consciousness. So again, this is a little bit like dreaming. When you're dreaming, you're not aware that you are dreaming. And the most primitive forms of this imagination happen at this level that is even below dreaming. It's unfortunately, otherwise it would be easy to see. Just, some teacher just pointed out and you just see it and, oh, that would be it. So this whole process begins with the reification of this first boundary. This boundary that separates I from other, self from world, subject from object. And then the next step in this is the reification of a boundary around a particular set of phenomena we call the body-mind. We say, oh, that's who I am. I am this body-mind and all the phenomena that arise in it, thoughts and feelings and so forth, and I am not that body-mind, and I am not that blackboard, and I am not that chair. So we set up this boundary, again, it's ultimately imaginary, but we don't know this, we just assume that's the way things are. We don't know we're doing it. When we identify with the body-mind, we identify with the body-mind's desires and aversions and so forth. And then uh, this makes us constantly looking for happiness out there because we think we are going to become happy if we can satisfy our desires and avoid the things we don't want. So, uh, as we grow up, we begin to identify then with other socially constructed boundaries that we learn from our culture, having to do with your family, for instance. Oh, I'm Joel, but I'm also part of the Moorwood family, and I'm also part of a certain, say, class. I'm uh, middle class. I'm not one of those poor people uh, living on the street and so forth. And I'm not Bill Gates either. I might wish I was and I might aspire to it, but I, I grow up with a certain class and values and so forth and in a certain culture or nationality. I'm an American. I'm not Chinese. 
So these are, again, boundaries that we identify with, and they make up who we think we are. Now, in this whole process of identification, and because we are constantly, through these filters of boundaries, looking for some happiness out there, because we don't know that we are already that consciousness that is eternally happy, this sets up a pattern of conditioning, of self-perpetuating conditioning as we grow up. And it's determined a lot by our culture, our nationality, our family, our background, and so forth, but it also comes down to our own individual experience. This chain of conditioning, that is what this nine links to the chain of conditioning refers to. So, our big problem is we're not aware of this conditioning. So it's important to have some outline of some understanding of it because mystical practices are designed, first of all, to make us aware of this conditioning because once we become aware of the conditioning, we can start to interrupt it. So that's really the whole function of mystical practices is to do that. And as we'll see, they approach... Uh, the, the chain at different lengths and, and they have different functions. They're appropriate at different times and different stages and so forth. But that's really what they're about. Now, the reason we can do this actually in each moment of practice, we don't have to go back and retrace the whole chain of conditioning back to our own personal lives and then the history of our society and our family and so forth, which of course <coughs> would be an endless task, is because this chain actually repeats itself in every moment of experience. The whole thing arises, the essentials of it. Uh, One uh, analogy for this is what happens when you learn to drive a car. I remember first learning how to drive a car. I was about 14 and my poor father took me out to teach me. And you learn a sequence of movements. So you sit there, and my father said, now put the key in the ignition. I'll put the key in the ignition. Now turn it on, put your foot on the gas. Oh, not too much, just, you know. And if you remember learning this, you remember how aware you were and how awkward it felt. But you were crystal clear of every movement going on, including when you got to trying to work the clutch and the brake together and this and that, and you thought, I'm never going to get this, you know. It was a very, very conscious process Now, what happens is as we learn and as we practice and practice, it recedes into our subconscious, if you like. But every time you go out and get into your car and put the key in the ignition and take the brake off and and start driving, you're repeating that whole sequence of conditioned behavior that you learned the first time around. Do you see what I'm talking about? Only now it's so habitual that you're not even aware of it. You can get in, start your car, and drive off. You can be talking to somebody. You can even drive someplace you're familiar with and be hardly aware of anything that went on. You're so engrossed in the conversation with your friend. So this is similar to the situation we face now. So when we talk about nine links of a chain of conditioning, we're not talking about necessarily, or we don't have to talk about, our whole history and the history of our culture and so forth. We are talking about... One spin, as though we took the car out for one little spin around the block. And how the essentials of this are repeated in that, and that's why we can begin to practice now. And that's why spiritual uh, teachings are always trying to focus on what's going on now, what's going on now. They don't care so much about your psychological history. That can be helpful, 
But that is not what mystical practices are mainly about. So, let's start with, number one, reification of the first boundary. As I said, this is the hardest link to become aware of because it happens at this very, very deep level of consciousness. So normally, when we start practicing, we are never going to be even close to becoming aware of this. But sometimes, some people do have a close experience of this in between dreams. If you've ever become lucid, or sometimes after a dream has ended, but before you've actually woken up, If you've ever become lucid in a state like that, an extraordinary state like that, and you had the feeling, I am, but you didn't know who you were or where you were. Have you ever had that feeling? So in that state, you are experiencing what's happened right after the reification of the first boundary. You know that you are a some sort of entity but you don't know who or what. You haven't yet reified boundaries around other phenomena, like body, mind, and thoughts, and so forth, that will tell you who you are. So right in that moment, you're actually very, very close to seeing that, oh, that first boundary is just imaginary. It's just happened when you've woken up. Sometimes people are quite frightened by that experience. It can be a very frightening experience. And that drives the mind immediately to figure out who I am. And we wake up and we say, oh, oh yes, yes, I have this body. Yes, we're, oh, I'm, I'm Joel and I'm in the bed. Oh, yes, this is Eugene, Oregon, and oh, I feel good again. You see what I'm talking about? So already there's this, um, there's this existential fear of going the other way. And this is something people have to deal with on a spiritual path at some point. Going backwards even beyond that. And of course, what mystics say is if you go backwards, uh, even in that state, one step backwards, you break through that barrier and you see actually that uh, you are that consciousness. And what you are afraid of is an illusion. And that consciousness is bliss, is happiness, is joy. So this boundary really doesn't get addressed until the end of the path. You could say that the ultimate Uh, practice is the practice of enlightenment or realization. That's what interrupts that link in the chain. That's the goal of the path. That's where the path is headed. But most people can't just begin right there. And one of the reasons is because of the second link in the chain of conditioning. Once we have identified with the body-mind, with its desires and aversions, then we are starting to be caught up in this, as I said before, this... um, this drive to satisfy our desires, to get what we want, to avoid what we don't want. And because all the things we want are impermanent, and the things we don't want will eventually catch up with us, sickness, old age, and death, and so forth, this strategy, this approach to life is futile. It won't work. It's not that it's wicked, it just won't work. And what happens is we get what we want, and we do get some pleasure some contentment out of it. But it wears off. Either the thing dies or perishes or we get bored with or whatever, so we have to keep going, keep going. So that our search for happiness under delusion is endless. And this sets up this chronic restlessness. And this chronic restlessness keeps our attention looking into the future for what is coming next. Because maybe the next thing will make me happy. So this sets up this constant movement of attention. 
In the East, they call this monkey mind. And the idea is like a monkey that, that keeps jumping from one branch to another, one branch to another. So this is a really um, deep-seated problem, but we experience it in our own lives as a, first of all, as a kind of undercurrent of restlessness. We're never quite at ease. We're never quite at peace. We're always looking. We're always moving around. The second link is mental identification. Once attention finds some object or some phenomena arising in consciousness, it wants to know what it is. And the way it knows what it is is by labeling it with some name or some label. Again, we normally don't notice this. It's not something we are aware that our minds are thinking at that verbal level. Oh, what is this? Oh, that's what it is. But sometimes in extraordinary situations, we are aware of it. For instance, if you are paying your bills and your attention is focused on paying your bills and suddenly you hear a loud noise outside, <gasps> you are startled, your attention flies to that noise, you don't know what it is for a moment. And you may even hear your mind say, what was that? And then the answer comes, a car crash. Oh, and you rush to the window and you look out and sure enough, there's a big wreck outside. You can see your mind doing that labeling in those kinds of extreme situations where you don't know what it is and you can hear your mind saying, well, what is that? What is that? And, and searching for an answer and finding an answer in a name or a label. The problem with this is through this process, we do the same thing with boundaries around objects that we do with the boundary around self. So, uh, for instance, the phenomena that appear with this gong. First of all, there's a sight phenomena. There's a sound phenomena. If I pick it up, there's a sensation. Has a smell, has a taste. This is what appears. This is the phenomena that appear in consciousness. The mind says, oh, that's a gong. It creates a boundary around all those phenomena and calls it gong. And then it assumes there is some gong, some solid object apart from all these phenomena that come and go. The sound is gone. Now, I put it down so the sensation is gone. I'm not tasting or smelling it anymore. That's gone. And if I put this behind my back, that's gone too. All these phenomena are impermanent. They keep arising and passing in consciousness. It's through this labeling and naming that we set up this delusion that there are these objects out there, and that perpetuates the delusion that we can get something that will make us happy, as though we could hang on to it. But they're all impermanent. So our search continues, our search continues. The fourth link is judging good, bad, or indifferent. So attention is restless, looking around. Some phenomena rises in consciousness. The mind, the thinking mind, labels it, names it. And then the next question is, is it going to benefit me? Is it going to pose a threat to me? Or is it not going to affect me at all? In other words, we're uh, placing that object in one of three categories, fundamentally. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's going to tell us how to react to it, right? Again, normally we don't notice this is going on. Sometimes the uh, name itself carries 
already a uh, judgment. So if you're an ice cream lover, the name ice cream, oh, you already know that's going to be good. You see what I mean? Your mind doesn't have to figure that out. Somebody presents some ice cream to you. But sometimes we can be aware of our minds doing this. And a good example is if you go into a restaurant and the waiter is uh, reciting the specials of the day. Now, you listen to your mind, and it'll say things like eggplant, ugh, yuck, chicken, eh, boring, lamb curry, oh, that sounds good. Your mind is doing this process, and you can hear it and see it doing it. So this forms the fourth link in the chain of condition. You see how all these links are arising out of being presented with one set of phenomena. They're all arising. Then the fifth link, desire and aversion. Depending on how the mind judges the object now, we are taking as an object being presented to us, good, bad, or indifferent, then three things will happen. If the judgment is indifferent, this won't affect me at all, it's nothing, attention will just move on to whatever next is on the horizon. Ignore it, basically. If, however, the object is good or bad, attention then will focus on it more intensely. Uh-oh. Is it something I'm going to uh, get or is it something I have to avoid? Uh, now, it's very important to note that here the object may be something material. Uh, you may, uh, you know, walk down the street and you see a piece of clothing in a store window you like. But it may be something mental. It may be a pleasant memory. You may be just sitting around in your lawn and, oh, the memory of your first date comes up if it was pleasant. And, uh, you know, so it doesn't have to be something physical here. It can be our own inner processes that we judge good, bad, or indifferent. Because if your first date was an unpleasant experience, oh, that was unpleasant. I don't want to think about that. And you'll go on to think about something else. Then... When we identify these desires and aversions and uh, apathy, we might say, if the object arises, we're indifferent to it, we have an apathetic attitude or sometimes even just boredom. If lots of objects are arising, we're indifferent to them, we get bored, we get even more restless. When we identify with these desires and aversions, this is really important in our, uh, in our condition because this is what sets us up for suffering. Because we think we are these desires, and the only way to become happy is to fulfill these desires. So it's an important link here. But the next uh, link is actually even more important. Because in the next link, once a desire or an aversion for some object has arisen, you'll see there's an impulse, a tendency then to grasp in some way what we desire and to reject and push away what we want to avoid. And this impulse is its uh, different from the desire or an aversion itself. And the difference is that an element of volition enters the picture here. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're walking down the street and you're a pastry lover. And you walk by a bakery and the aroma of this delicious pastry comes out of the bakery and wafts through the air, right? Now, okay, so first of all, what is that? This is an object arising. Uh, oh, that's pastry. Oh, that smells delicious. Oh, desire arises. I want that. Now, these things, especially the desire part, they are involuntary. 
You don't uh, control a desire arising. The smell evoked the desire. Now, an impulse says, I got to go into that bakery and buy a piece of pastry right now. That's the grasping. And at this point, you could decide, no, I'll ignore that desire. I'll just let it pass, and I will keep walking. Let's say you're on a diet, right? <laughs> so this wonderful uh, smell comes, the desire arises, you feel that impulse to go get it, but you say, no. So this is an important point, as we'll see, because this is a, a, a point where we can immediately begin to interrupt this chain of conditioning in a very practical way. This is the one link here that is immediately accessible to us. Unlike these other links, which are happening at such an habitual, unconscious level, we're not even aware of it, but usually in our life, we're aware of this. Sometimes, you know, the desire is there, the grasping is there, and then you're on a diet and you want to resist, but you give in. So it's not always certain, but you usually know what's going on, because then you usually feel guilty if you went and gave in, right? So, the seventh link, deliberating. When an impulse to grasp or reject some object arises, and the object is not within immediate reach, like the pastry is right there, the object's something that we have to work at getting or avoiding, then attention goes to the mind's work of planning. So, for instance, let's say you met someone at a party who was very attractive and you wanted to get them to know them better, and eventually you thought, well, I might really like this person, want to date them, and so forth and so on. Then the mind starts scheming. How can I arrange to meet them again? I don't want to be too forward, you know, but I, you know, and this and that. And so the mind starts going through all this planning process, deliberating. So this can get very complicated. For instance, you may recall situations from the past similar situations to see how your planning worked out then. Oh, gee, that worked pretty good last time. Yes, I, um, I arranged to meet this person. Uh, I know they went to the library and I was there and I could strike up a conversation. I think I'll try that again. You know? <laughs> or you may uh, start fantasizing about the future. When we make plans, we often sort of run them through an imaginary uh, scenario and to see how they're going to work out. It's like running a computer model program, you know? Oh, man, that's not going to work. I'll try something else. Uh, logic usually plays a significant role in deliberation, but it's rarely a purely logical process. And again, we go back to our conditioning, our personal history, our likes and dislikes, our family, our class, nationality, all these biases that we've been conditioned to have come into play. So we go through this period of deliberation. Now... The important thing to notice here is that 90% of the time, our deliberations are self-centered. They involve our own interests, what we want. I, me, mine. And when we just keep habitually deliberating in that way, that just keeps perpetuating the self-centered conditioning, this story of I that is running in our heads. The story of I is basically the story of how can I get what I want, how can I avoid what I don't want, and how can I be happy. So we just habitually do this. Then the eighth link is interesting. This is uh, deciding, and after a period of deliberation, the mind comes to a decision. 
about what to do. Now, this is very similar that, uh, to what happens in the sixth link with volition, with the grasping and the rejecting, when you uh, feel that impulse, that grasping impulse to go into the bakery and buy something, and then maybe there is a, uh, another thought that says, no, you're on a diet, you shouldn't do that, and then a decision is made one way or another. But the difference here is that if we have spent a period of time weighing alternatives and so forth, the moment of decision-making is usually clearer and sharper. It's less impulsive. So we can become more aware of it. So just note that. I'm going to come back to this when we talk about how practices relate to these things. But that is essentially the difference between the eighth and the sixth link is whether the, the, the decision is more impulsive and quick and we hardly notice we're making a decision or whether we really know we are making a decision here, whether to buy a house or not or some big thing. Then in the ninth link, uh, which is forming attachments, how does this work? You notice that sometimes long after a situation has passed, attention keeps returning to it, dwells on it, fixates on it. Whether that situation was pleasant or unpleasant. So, for instance, let's say uh, at work you're called upon to give a presentation, a sales report or something. And you give the report, and it goes over well with your colleagues. Everybody applauds, and they come up to you afterwards and say, gee, that was really marvelous. That was a lot of information. You, you delivered it in an entertaining way, and this is really great. Then you'll notice usually for the rest of the day, at least, and maybe days afterward, your attention keeps going back to that, to savor the success. You replay the tape over and over and over, right? Likewise, if you botch the presentation and people are yawning or walking out and you're feeling this humiliation and you're suffering and you realized you didn't have the right notes and you gave the wrong information and as you're talking, it's dreadful, it's going terrible and everybody just leaves, you know, afterwards. <laughs> Your attention is still at to return to replay the humiliation and the pain of your suffering. Does that happen? Now, this is significant because it's through this process that we form attachments to habitual ways of behaving. When we keep dwelling on pleasant situations, it generates a desire to repeat them in the future. So, for instance, if the presentation went well and you liked it, you enjoyed this, uh, you might start thinking about, hey, you know, um, if I were the vice president of this company, I could do this all the time. And then it might spark your ambition. What you really then are after is power. You like that sense of being the center of attention and everybody respects you and whatnot. That might set you off on a career course. If you botched it, that might stymie any ambition you have. You might say, no, I just as soon be a bank teller. I never want to get up in front of a group of people again and give any kind of presentation. Just too painful. So in the future, you're asked to give a presentation uh, you will jump at it if you went well and if you've been dwelling on it and so forth. If you are asked to give a presentation and you had botched it, you'll say, no, thank you. So do you see how it conditions us? We will start to respond to the similar phenomena in the future the same way we respond in the past, depending on how it worked out for us. And forming these attachments, either the attachment to 
having uh, more successes or the attachment to avoiding any situation where we can have a failure, these attachments then reinforce our conditioning. They not only make this whole cycle repeat, but it grows stronger and stronger. And most people, as they get older, become more attached to their habitual ways. We, we just know this through our you know, stereotypes of older people. They're set in their ways. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. All those kinds of expressions express this, how our attachments become stronger and stronger and our behavior becomes more and more conditioned. So that's, I say, how the uh, 12 links of the chain of condition function. And you can see, I mean, if it's a question of passing by a bakery and having the smell arise, then we'll end at the sixth link and, uh, and we might... Uh, or skip to the ninth link because you'll be eating that piece of, uh, you know, eclair or something. You'll be saying, oh, this is a really good bakery. I'll have to stop by here again. That's an attachment, you know. <laughs> and you'll get in the habit of every, uh, you know, every day on your way to work or something, you stop buying it. Well, probably not an eclair, unless they're croissant, you know. <laughs> just to carry this forward, just to show you how attachments really set us up even for more suffering. If the first time you went to the bakery and you went in and you bought the croissant, it wasn't very good, eh, you'd be a little disappointed. But if it's delicious, and so every day you go and you get your croissant in the morning, and this goes on for a year, and then you come to the bakery one day and it's closed, you know, out of business, whatnot. Oh my God, what? How am I going to get through my morning? So this is, you know, how this repetition creates these attachments, which just creates more and more suffering for us. Okay. So how does all this relate to our spiritual practice? is the big question. Now, I'm only, as I said, going to be able to briefly relate different practices to these different links in the chain. Some of the practices I'll mention, some of you won't be familiar with, and I, it just isn't time this morning to stop and describe them in any great length. Uh, if you're interested afterwards, uh, you can ask me or some librarians. They can point you to books that would describe them in more detail and so forth. But let's see how this works. Uh, Oh, let me also mention that because these various links are more or less accessible to our conscious awareness, as it is normally, uh, the practices on a path are divided into just roughly beginning, intermediate, and advanced. You can't do an advanced practice if you haven't done the intermediate practices because the, the links that you're addressing, the, they're too subconscious. You can't get at them. You don't know what's going on. So all paths have practices that uh, are set up in this fashion. It isn't because of some uh, horrible patriarchal, hierarchical, authoritarian view of things. It just It's the way reality works. The strength of the different links is, is different for different people. So some people, uh, what's a beginning practice for somebody else may be an intermediate practice for the other person and so forth. So it's not hard and fast. I'm just trying to give you some idea of why we talk about beginning, intermediate, and advanced practices. And you'll see some of this as we um, go through it, I think. For instance, uh, let's look at the diagram again. As I said, the first boundary, most people cannot immediately access what is going on here. But I do want to say that it's important to realize that it's not that we imagine these boundaries that is the problem. It is that we reify that boundary. We take it to be real. 
the whole mystical path is not about entering some state where there's nothing. Or whether it's, uh, where it's uh, like Alan Watts once said, it's like pablum or mush, you know. Uh, boundaries are imaginary, and when seen without these reifications, they are the divine play. That's how God plays. God creates boundaries, and God uses you, if you like, I'm speaking crudely, to do that. So we're never about getting rid of boundaries. What we want to see is their true nature. So, if we could see that that very first boundary we imagined between self and world was imaginary, then the whole house of cards collapses. And by that I mean this chain of self-centered conditioning. And that is very important to say here. It's not that conditioning disappears. I am conditioned to speak English. I speak English because I grew up in an English-speaking family. I do not speak any other languages. I can ask for beer in Spanish. Very important to know if you're a beer drinker. But that's about it. But someone who grows up in a Spanish-speaking household is conditioned to speak Spanish. So it's not about losing our conditioning. It's about losing the center of our conditioning that revolves around I, me, mine. That's what self-centered conditioning means. It's about losing the story of I. The story of I no longer is your story. And the self is no longer the pivot around which your life functions. Or we could say around which it is trapped, the way planets are trapped in an orbit around uh, a sun. So that's a very important distinction to make. Okay, um, so really we have to start with the second link in the chain of conditioning, this chronic restlessness. And not only does this chronic restlessness give us this sense of disease and uh, a lack of peace and so forth and keeps our attention focused on things out there and perpetuates this whole quest for happiness in a world of things, it also keeps our attention moving away from who we truly are. It keeps our attention moving out of the present, where if we could come completely to rest in the present, we might have a chance of recognizing the first link in the chain of condition. So it's very important to deal with this chronic restlessness. How do we interrupt this link in the chain of conditioning? And this is by uh, taking up beginning practices, either of concentration meditation or contemplative prayer, which also is a, is a concentration practice. Roughly speaking, contemplative prayer, you focus on a name, a divine name, or a mantra, or a very short prayer, and you train attention to be still, not to be caught up in, in all the rest of the length of the chain of conditioning that's going to arise. The naming of the phenomena that arises, the judging of the good and bad, and so forth. You keep attention just focused on one object. And that's how you train attention to be still. That's how you break the habit of monkey mind. So that's why meditation, particularly beginning meditation, that's what it's about. That's what it's designed to address. That's why we do it. It's, there's not a big mystery about that. Uh, the problem in the third link is, as I said before, naming and labeling reifies these objects around us. Gongs, tables, chairs, uh, people, uh, pets, and so forth. 
So uh, how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, beginning meditation gets our attention to stand still. So even though the naming is going on, we're not wrapped up in it. It's sort of going on in the periphery of our minds. We're focused on some object, some prayer, or the breath, or something like that. So that's already interrupting this a little bit. But we can also then take up the intermediary practice of choiceless awareness meditation, or as the Buddhists call it, insight meditation, where we're no longer focusing on some one object, but we've trained attention to be still enough now that we allow whatever's arising to arise, and we start to recognize the difference between our thoughts about phenomena and the phenomena themselves. Do you see what I mean? So I'm sitting here in choiceless awareness. I hear a bird. Caw, caw. And immediately I notice my mind labels it bird. And then the thought bird disappears and the sound arises again. And I can now distinguish the naked experience of the sound without the label thought. And I can do that with sensations, with sights, and so forth. And I begin to see the difference between the mind's thinking of a name, a label, creating an object out of just the naked experience of all these sights, sounds, sensations, everything arising and passing away. And so if I happen to be sitting in a window and I see the bird land on a fence, I hear it chirp, my mind says bird, and it corrals these two separate phenomena, the sight of the bird and the sound of the bird, and it brings them together into an object. It creates a boundary around them. It makes a distinction. And if I just let the thought pass away, I see that they're actually two separate phenomena. Sound phenomena, sight phenomena. And the sight phenomena passes away when the bird takes off, and the sound phenomena passes away when the bird stops chirping. But all these phenomena are just arising and passing away. Different phenomena. And so I begin to see how this mind creates this mental identification. It creates objects out of raw, naked phenomena appearing in consciousness. So this is what choiceless awareness can do. And this is how we can begin to break this uh, conditioned habit of mental identification. It's so subliminal, we don't even know what's going on unless we try to do some meditation. We begin to become aware of it. And then uh, we begin to see how futile it is when we get down to the grasping and the pushing away. We're weaned from our attachments. So it just relaxes us. It opens up our minds. It opens up our awareness. And it alleviates some of that chronic desperation we have to get, get or push away or keep away. In the fourth link, when we habitually act on self-referential judgments, that is judgments all in relation to me, am I going to like it, am I not going to like it, is it going to affect me, and so forth, when we habitually do that, we keep perpetuating the story of I. Because, you know, the story of our lives, as I said, is how to get what I want, and so forth. The way to start to interrupt this is to take up beginning practice of cultivating love and compassion for others. It takes the attention off the story of I. And we begin to focus our attention more and more on what other people need and want. 
This is why love and compassion is stressed so strongly in all these traditions. Cultivating love and compassion. Take the attention off me. I mean mine and what I want. And all the suffering that that leads to. And start letting attention flow out into the world. And see what's going on with other people. In the fifth link... As I said before, when we identify desires and aversions as mine, this sets us up for more suffering. Because if I don't get what I want, I'm going to suffer. And if I do get what I want, I'm going to be, yes, momentarily happy, but because it's impermanent and empty, it's going to fade away. And I'm still going to have to continue this, continue this, and there's going to be no end to it. Or the end is going to be death. And as John Lennon said, uh, you know, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. And it's true. And in a way, we're always leading our lives that way. And in uh, many traditions, death won't even be the end of it. This whole chain of conditioning will just perpetuate on another plane. Um, So, how do we interrupt this? Well, we do this through advanced practices of meditating on the desires and aversions themselves and the various kinds of uh, complicated emotions that spring out of that anger, jealousy, and so forth. And this is an advanced practice. You're not able to do this until you've done some of these other practices, until you've studied the mind, until you observe the impermanence of things, until you develop some sort of spacious awareness, because you will be so snapped up into the story when these emotions and desires and so forth arise. But once you have that, what the Buddhists call mindfulness or spacious awareness, then you can actually observe the desires and aversions and the various emotions themselves. And there are two things you see. One is they are impersonal. They are not mine. We disidentify with them. We see them like any other phenomena arising and passing in consciousness. So a desire is like a sound. It comes and it goes. But then, even more profoundly, we continue these sorts of practices and we see that what we take to be, mistakenly, under delusion, my desires, my aversions, my anger, my jealousy, and all these, that these are really divine energies. And through this seeing, they are transformed into what the Tibetan Buddhists call wisdom energies. So we're never about getting rid of any emotion, again. It's just like we're not about getting rid of boundaries. We're about seeing their true nature. And when we see their true nature, they are no longer self-centered. They no longer are the fuel that goes into that story, driving that story of I. Then they become the divine energies, the creative energies of the world. Then, the sixth link, grasping, rejecting, and volition. This, as I said before, is pivotal especially in the very first stages of our practice. It is pivotal because of this uh, element of volition that enters here. If we simply act on these impulses to grasp or push away, habitually, unconsciously, and so forth, what we're really doing then is taking our inner conditioning and we are translating directly into action. This is the link between what's going on inwardly and outwardly. Do you know what I mean? I have a desire, and then I have to get what I want. Uh, in fact, uh, our cultures, our societies, spend a lot of time trying to get us simply to mature beyond the point where we just impulsively have to have what we want at the moment it arises. 
This is just something that naturally we hope uh, you know societies can impart to their generations that come up with varying degrees of success. So it's a question of, first of all, just becoming mature enough to allow a gap for some sort of volition to work here. But from a, uh, a mystical point of view, uh, from the point of view of mystical practices, we want to go even farther than that. Not just behave in a mature way, but to start to behave in a less self-centered way. So, uh, because of this volition and this gap between the difference between a desire and grasping and an aversion pushing away and this, this moment of decision-making, this is what I called in my other talk, Freedom's Gate. This is the place we can all actually start beginning to practice. And how do we do this? We have to start practicing detachment. Detachment means not that we suppress or get rid of desire or aversion. We allow it to arise and we allow it to pass without grasping, without rejecting. Very, very important, key, simple definition of what detachment means, especially in our culture where people mistake it to mean some sort of uh, stoicism or indifference or coldness or something like that. It does not mean that at all, but it does mean allowing the desires and aversions to rise and pass without grasping anything and without pushing anything away. And how can we do this in terms of practicing? Well, the minute we start practicing beginning meditation, we are practicing this. If you're sitting there concentrating on an object and you get an itch on your nose, oh, everything will happen just in this order. There's a phenomenon. Oh, mental identification, itch. Oh, bad. Oh, avoid it and, or get rid of it. That's by scratching, right? So it's right at that moment. There's the identification. There's the judgment that's bad. There's the aversion, the wanting to get rid of it. But then in the meditation, you can exercise that will and you can say, no, don't reach up and scratch it. Allow it to arise and pass on its own. And you will see in 90% of the cases it does. It's a very good training because all these things we think we have to take care of in the moment, you know, most of the time if you leave them alone, they go away. <coughs> I don't know how much of uh, at least my life under delusion was worrying about things that hadn't happened yet that never happened. <laughs> But more importantly, and uh, we can really tackle this one in a big way, that is by taking up a beginning practice, but a practice that matures into a very profound practice of keeping moral precepts. Not to lie, not to steal, things like that. By making a resolve to keep these precepts, first of all, just the fact that we have made this resolve brings the light of awareness on to our behavior, our typical patterns of behavior in everyday situations where we move from desire to grasping or aversion to rejection without thinking about it. So, for instance, lying. We have a desire to please somebody. So we lie automatically. So if I've taken a vow not to lie, I insert a wedge in between these two links. And now I have the choice the aspect of volition enters, then I can decide not to lie. And then if I take these moral precepts as experiments, what would happen if I tried to practice these? I see this actually transforms my behavior. When we speak about spiritual transformation, everybody wants transformations in their states of consciousness and so forth. But if it ain't happening here, the level of the body, speech, and mind, it ain't happening. 
Spiritual transformation is so that how you behave six months ago is different from how you're behaving today. And how you behave a year from now is very different. And you look back and you say, my gosh, even though you might have thought yourself a mature person, if you do practice precepts and so forth, you look back and you will see how immature you were a year ago if you've been practicing it. And immature is not even the best word. It carries a negative judgment in our society. Let me say this, how more mindful, how more insightful you are about what's going on. So practicing precepts is extremely important, uh, even though it's neglected by some teachers today. But if you go back through all the great traditions, that's almost the foundation of practice. A lot of them won't even take you on as a student unless you've been practicing that. Jesus said to uh, a young rich man who came and said, Master, how can I be perfect? And Jesus first said, well, keep the Ten Commandments. And he said, well, that's what I've been doing since my youth. And Jesus said, well, if you really want to be perfect, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And the rich man, wow, he couldn't handle that. So, But this is the point, you know, he was insisting on a foundation here of moral practice, not to make you a good person, but so you have the awareness that comes from that kind of practice of how the chain works and so forth. Okay, now, seventh link, deliberating. Again, if we deliberate always based on our self-interest, we're always perpetuating our chain of conditioning. And the way to break this is to take up an intermediary practice of Cultivating more love and compassion in your life. Or let me put it this way, cultivating it in a more precise way. And there are specific practices for doing this, and particularly in the Buddhist tradition. In the Theravadian tradition, this is called metta, or loving-kindness meditation. In the Tibetan tradition, it's called sending and taking. They are formal meditations where you sit down and you cultivate love and compassion, first for yourself, then for friends, then for strangers, then for enemies. It's a uh, quite a formal discipline, and it has a certain progression from easier to harder, usually, uh, in which you actually learn that if you cultivate love and compassion, or I should say if you release it, because it's already there, if you remove the barriers, I, mean mine, and let it flow, you find in your own experience, this is the source of real joy. I thought I was going to get happiness grabbing, snatching, pushing away. But in the very release of these energies of love and compassion, there is the joy. So the more you practice, the more you want to do that. The more you do that, when the time comes to deliberate, you're not just thinking of me, I, mine. You're taking into consideration the good of the whole. What's good for my family? What's good for the community? What's good for my friends? All that comes into the deliberation. Attention, again, goes off the self and goes to a much larger community. Then, ah, now we come to the paradoxical one. You see... None of this is very mysterious so far. Some of these uh, links in the chain of conditioning are not accessible immediately to our awareness, but the logic behind it is not mysterious. And you can all check these out empirically, and you can see for yourself that they're true. But the eighth one, we start to get to the paradox of the path, because the mysticism is called mysticism for a reason. There is an element of it that's very mysterious. In the eighth link, paradoxically... This business of deciding, of self-will, we think we have self-will, is actually the linchpin of the delusion of self. 
And if you start on a spiritual path, you will begin to see, well, maybe I'm really not my body and my thoughts and my desires and aversions. They come and go. They're all conditioned. But it's very hard to see, well, I'm the one who wills things. I'm in charge of my life. That's who I am. As Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, anyone who imagines I act is totally deluded. That's what I call it mirror teaching. You can hold that up to your life. Every time you catch yourself imagining you're doing something, you can remember what Krishna said. What was he talking about? And why would I say this now when I've just highlighted the importance of volition between the fifth and the sixth links? And the answer is given by another Hindu, Ananda Mayamai. And she says, it's like if you fall down on the ground, you use the ground to push yourself back up. Since we all start in delusion, the teachings address where we are. You could think of it this way. Mystics say, since you believe that you act out of your own will, let's use that. Then instead of directing your will to deepen this conditioning, why don't you use your will to try to interrupt it and see what would happen? But ultimately then, we run up against the problem of will itself. Now, there are two things we can do about it. And uh, one is an intermediary practice because it's difficult to do unless you've been practicing mindfulness and concentration, meditation, and so forth. And that is, in the moment when the decision is made, and it's easier to do it in the eighth link, as I said, than the sixth link because the decision is less impulsive usually and more focused because you've been weighing all these alternatives. You watch and see what happens when a decision is made. Let's say you're buying a car. And you go to the library and you read consumer reports. Well, you don't do that anymore, do you? You get on the internet, you read whatever, right? And you compare prices and gas mileage. All this logic is going on and so forth. And then you narrow it down to one or two cars you like. And then, you know, it comes down to the color or the style and all that. And then you're going back and forth. And you watch and you'll see suddenly there's a shift in the mind. And a decision is made. What you will not find, if you watch this process closely, is any one in there making a decision. The more you do that, the more you see, oh, decisions happen. Then, you're ready to move into one of the most advanced practices of the whole path, and that is to surrender your will to God's will, or the will of the divine, or the action of the Tao or the spontaneous manifestation of Buddha nature, however you want to put it. It doesn't matter. They're all speaking about the same thing. You surrender to what is happening. That doesn't mean decisions aren't going to be made. That doesn't mean that uh, love and compassion isn't going to be there. That doesn't mean that all the things that are going on in your life aren't going to go on. But... When you start practicing the surrender, and this is a scary practice and not an easy practice, when you start practicing this, what you discover is what you thought was your will is a pseudo-will. It's just conditioning. You decided to get the car because you've conditioned to want that car for whatever reasons, from the most practical reasons, because you were taught to be frugal with your money, to you were taught to have a favorite color, uh, to the styling, to whatever psychological reasons. You feel sexually inadequate and this car's got a long hood or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know it's just conditioning. <laughs> the only free will is divine will. And when we surrender to divine will, that is free will. That will is spontaneous. 
that will is playful. That will is free of all these worries and concerns about, oh, what's going to happen to me, and this and that. It is the kind of freedom that if you've ever done any artistic endeavors, writing, painting, dancing, singing, when you really get into it, and you no longer feel, I am doing it, something is coming through, and it's just happening, you're just the vehicle for it. And it is blissful, it is delightful. That is what surrendering to the divine will means. That is the practice. And you see that actually life is this anyway. This is our delusion. We don't see that this is what's going on. But the more you surrender to it, the more you see it. So the eighth link is a very important link, but it really it requires uh, advanced practices to address it. Practices of watching that decision-making and then surrendering your will to the divine will. Then finally, the ninth link as we said, fixating on past not only strengthens our conditioning and gets it to repeat itself, but it also keeps building the story of I. The more attachments you build up, the more you know who you are. I'm a person who likes this. I'm a person who insists on things being this way. I'm a person who doesn't like that. This all feeds into your mental image of who you are and so forth. So uh, the way to interrupt this is to practice mindfulness, the mindfulness that you've developed doing the concentration meditation practice as a formal practice and doing the choiceless awareness practice as a formal practice, you now apply this mindfulness in your daily life. So if you are driving home from a day at work in which you gave a presentation, whether good or bad, and you find your mind dwelling on it, you notice it. You have the mindfulness to notice it. And then you can practice just what you do with desire and aversion, neither grasping nor pushing away. You don't try to stop the thoughts and say, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. If you just look at the thoughts, you see they are just thoughts. You see so clearly in that situation how imaginary they are. The, the, the day is gone. Whether you botched the presentation or whether you were successful, it's water under the bridge. It's gone with the wind. But your mind is still living that story. And it's so clear how imaginary that is. You see that. And just by looking directly at it, you allow the thoughts to dissolve, not to link up with another one about it, another one about it. Because we're conditioned to do this, it doesn't mean the first time you do this is going to work. You allow them to dissolve, and attention immediately comes back to the present, where you are here and now. The thoughts start up again, look at them, they dissolve. You keep that practice up, and pretty soon you recognize them. It's like having the TV on the background. Uh, so the mind's, you know, playing this. But most of my attention's out here on this beautiful spring day that I'm driving through that I'm missing completely because I'm living in this imaginary world. So we keep doing that, and that weakens our attachments, and it, it, it weakens our attachments to past and future which we haven't had much chance to talk about this morning. We're not going to talk about. But the fact that our attention is always moving off to uh, live in imaginary worlds we create about the future or back to dwell in imaginary worlds of the past, this is what's keeping attention away from being right here present to what's going on. So in the last link, if we can completely interrupt this, we get to the space between the ninth and the first link, which is the space of pure awareness, where once again... The boundary between I and others reified, and the whole wheel turns again. So, uh, I want to say one last thing about this. It is not enough to simply understand this intellectually. It will not do you any good. 
And it won't even do you any good if you take a class at the U of O in comparative religion or something, because you won't have learned the Buddhist version of 12 links of condition arising. You'll give Joel Morwood's nine-link version, and you won't get a, a passing grade on it. You know, <laughs> the professor won't know who you're talking about. But the purpose of this, it's like a map. You take the map, and you just start watching, being mindful of your own life. And you start seeing, first of all, always checking out what, what uh, mystical teachers say. Is it true in your own experience? That's very important. You don't take anything on faith, uh, just blind faith. Is it true? And then you start to see for yourself. Oh, you can see how the mind identifies and labels. Usually in the beginning, it'll only be in dramatic situations. But when you see that happening, you say, oh, that's what Joel was talking about. Yes, I can see this going on now. When you pass that bakery and the desire arises and the grasping, you say, oh, I see, that's the fifth and the sixth link there. Oh, you see? So once we use this map and we start to look at our own experience in terms of it, then it makes clear to us that we are conditioned and how we can uh, apply skillful means to interrupt the conditioning. So that's my talk for this morning. Are there any questions? Yes. Um, okay. Lately, it seems to me like I've been hanging out around number six a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it seems to me like when I'm at that point, that's when I'm giving life to a thought. I'm making it real. And I, at that point, if it's really, really juicy, and it's, I really want to buy into it, it seems like the choice is, for me, is, you know, do you want to be free, or do you want to buy in? And that's sometimes really difficult, because sometimes I just say, oh, the hell with it, I'm... <laughs> well, you see, depends on how much juice it has. <laughs> first of all, let me say you it's a very astute observation that this is where the thoughts become real, because this is where the inner thoughts get acted out in in reality. So they take on a kind of reality in that sense. You know what I mean? They become manifested when we do it, and so that yes, they they acquire a life for better or worse. Uh, so that's a really astute observation. That's why this link here between the fifth and the sixth is so extremely important. That's why it's any one of these could be really the gate to freedom, but that is the most immediate, accessible, obvious one. Now, one of the things you can do about this business of trying to resist buying into it and then buying into it and then having the question come up, do I want to just continue with this conditioned life or do I want to be free? is to apply mindfulness when you do buy into it, rather than getting into a big battle with yourself. So just let's go back. To, buy into Well, but, wait a minute. So now I'm walking down the street, past the bakery. Do you like pastries? Oh, kind of. What do you, what do you really like? What you tends, name it. Oh, okay. <laughs> you do. Okay, there you are. So the aroma comes out. The, Cookies. Cookie, oh, the cookie factory. Uh, just open this new, right on your normal route, right? Wonderful, fresh baked cookies. Oh. 
So now the desire arises. That's involuntary. You can't do anything about that. Then the impulse to grasp comes in. And the thought, oh, if I got that cookie, I'd really be happy. I've got to have one of those cookies. And then, you see, if you're on a spiritual path, another thought comes in and says, yes, but wait a minute. If I keep just doing this, I'm just going to be living a conditioned life. And this is a moment I could you know, practice gaining a little bit of freedom, right? So this is the thought of a spiritual practitioner entering. But then that desire is so strong, and then you're fighting it, and then you're feeling miserable. So stop then and say, okay, let me go in and buy this cookie and eat this cookie and then observe what happens. Let me do this with extreme mindfulness. Then you go in and you buy the cookie and you maybe walk out to the park and eat the cookie slowly each bite. And you see how the flavor is there, what's delicious flavor, and then it dissolves away. You've got to have another bite. Eat that, and you let it dissolve away. You'll see this grasping arising between each bite if you extend them out long enough for the first flavor to dissolve completely away. You will see that conditioning right there. You know, this is why we eat sweets fast. Because we want to keep that flavor going, because it's all impermanent. Spicy food you can eat slower, because it stays around. You know what I mean? Sweets you have to eat fast. That's true. I've, I've done studies of this now. <laughs> then you finish the cookie. All right, maybe you still want more. Go back and buy another cookie. You have two choices here. One is if you're content, then just stay mindful and see how long that contentment really lasts. And you start to convince yourself through your own experience that this is all futile. This is really like, you know, trying to grasp the wind. I can't. I'm never going to find true abiding happiness this way. I'm always going to be on this merry-go-round of chasing pleasures, chasing sensations. It's never going to end. Or you go back and eat more and more cookies until it turns into its opposite. You go stuff yourself with so much cookies, you'll be vomiting. You'll never want to see another cookie again. <laughs> Which also convinces you that these pleasures are not solid and fixed themselves. They're all relative. You know, everything depends on something else. It's through that kind of mindful observation of your own conditioning as it's unfolding, without changing anything you're actually doing, but just becoming aware of what you're doing, that you will then naturally become more dissatisfied with living that kind of life. Because you'll be having insight into what it is. Also, does the same apply, say, for a negative? Say, there's a storyline going on. Somebody gives you a call and they trigger you and suddenly you're just furious with them and how dare they and all this stuff going on. And then you get it, uh-oh, here I am. And you dive into it anyway. Is it the same sort of thing? You it, have to handle it in some different Well, way. this is another reason that we take up precepts, because precepts protect us from actually harming somebody else. When we do something that harms another person, the problem with that is not only are we perpetuating our own suffering, we're also causing someone else to suffer, which magnifies our own suffering enormously, ultimately. So in a certain sense, it's going to really come back to haunt us. So if I say something hurtful to you, not only am I perpetuating my suffering, I'm then causing you to suffer, but 
a week later, I might say, oh, why did I say to Patricia? I really wish I had said, but you are still angry at me, and you will do something hurtful to me. So it's going to come back from outside, so to speak. Or, you know, it's like ripples. You're going to pass it on to somebody else, and then generally, you know, there's going to be more suffering in the world. So we want to be careful not to overstep that boundary. That boundary is the boundary that precepts set for us. They're not any more real than any other boundary. They're extremely useful boundary. Within that boundary, though, we can still experiment. Because you're on the phone, you're really angry at me, you know what I mean? You want to say something, but one of our precepts is not to harm anyone. So you resist at the moment, you put the phone down, but then you let it out. Ah, oh, you, so-and-so, and then as you're doing this, you're mindful, how is this really making me feel? There'll be a momentary feeling of relief to get it off your chest and all that. But is this leading you towards happiness? And then you can start to practice inquiry here. Well, why am I so angry? Joel said something on the phone. He said, you're so dumb, Patricia, you'll never get it. And then I look and I say, I've got this image of myself as being a smart person. And, and he punctured that. But what is that being a smart person? That's just an image I have. Uh, anybody can hurt me if I'm carrying around that image. It's a big target. It says, here, shoot arrows at this and hurt me. You know what I mean? What would happen, though, is this Im- first of all, this image is imaginary. What would happen if I let that go? Arrows fly through the air, but they don't have any target to stick in. You see what I mean? So you are still um, experimenting with your feelings and your habitual feelings, and you're seeing where they would lead if you acted out. But in the case of actually harming other people, you do as much as possible, put that boundary up. Sometimes there are exceptions. If you have a good friend and you've been a person who's always never expressed your anger or something, you know, it could be helpful to actually see what happens when you express your anger with someone that you can later go back and say, I'm sorry, you know, that it's not going to do irreparable damage or whatever, you know. And it's not just about expressing anger. It's, uh, I should even modify that more. It's expressing it in a hurtful way. There's no problem whatsoever about expressing anger. We should be expressing anger. But the difference is, you're responsible for so how unhappy I am, rather than saying, you know, gee, I'm feeling such anger now, and owning the anger and not responding by trying to make the other person hurt or angry. So it's how we work with these emotions, really much more to the point than than actually having emotions. But you see, a spiritual path and the practices of a path are disciplines. They have boundaries. Some of them are quite formal, but otherwise, you know, they have very definite parameters. But if we just follow them mechanically and slavishly, we're never going to get anywhere. We'll have no insight. But if we use them, it's what they are intended for, and then experiment within them. And that means just doing the kinds of things we've been talking about. That's how we get insight. And when we get insight, the more we know the truth, the less we need parameters. Do you see what I mean? You break the habit, sir. You break the habit. And finally, what St. Augustine said, he said, you know, the whole Christian message can be reduced to one simple thing, one commandment, love and do what you will. Now, that is a profound, heavy teaching. That means if everything you do is coming from a selfless love and compassion, you don't need any precepts, you don't need nothing. The Tao Te Ching says the same thing. 
when the Tao is lost, virtue arises. When virtue is lost, laws arise. And the idea is if you go back to that initial selfless quality of the Tao, you don't need the other stuff. But you can't pretend you're there, otherwise you're way worse off than if you even started with it. Very, very good question, very good observation about this, and I uh, hope that was helpful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've outlined these nine links, and I certainly relate to every one of them we're talking about, most humanity. But we have the sage now, the sage who's enlightened and aware and all this. Is there anything you want to say about how the sage deals with this, or what's really going on with... Yes. There's no sage. This is this is what is realized. No, but that, that is the point. You see, this is this is one of the hardest things to get. It's, when I'm enlightened, I'm going to be perfect. When I'm enlightened, I'm going to have mastered all this. When I'm enlightened, but that's part of the story of I. That's the delusion. Enlightenment is about realizing at that very first boundary. Whether we call this sage or dummy is irrelevant. The boundary's not real. You know what I mean? Yes, in the back when, there. When the story of I goes, <laughs> is there another story? <laughs> yes, 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 what yes. Is, any, story? Every story, any story. Is it the story of what's happening right now, for instance? It could be. That's the whole point. You see, there is no story of I that's an ongoing running story. So stories arise around situations. If you've been reading about shamanic worlds, suddenly the world can appear to you in a shamanic way. So that's a shamanic story. Do you see what I mean? Uh, it could appear to you mathematically. If you've been reading mathematics, that's the point. It's free. It's not locked into one story. If it involves people, it'll be a story that arises around one situation. As long as that situation pertains, it's there, and then it dissolves. You know. So just a, an example with my wife. It's not one story with my wife. Throughout the day, there are countless different stories. Do you know. There's a story with a sex goddess. You know, I mean... <laughs> There's also the story with the grouch, by the way, too. You know, just balance the counts here. <laughs> but it's like stories then become more like objects in consciousness. They come and they're helpful and then they go... And I would say they're like icing on the cake, you know? They're not running the show anymore. No, they're an extra little flourish. Part of the symphony, but not essential to it, and uh, a flourish on it, you know. All right, well, we have gone on quite a while this morning. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and you're all welcome to hang around and have some tea, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.